Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Peter Armstrong. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight, a far cry from far enough. Tomorrow, Ottawa will launch a new immigration program for relatives of Canadians affected by conflict in Sudan. Tonight, one man who hopes to get his own family to safety tells us the plan will only scratch the surface. Politically incorrect. A former advisor to Palestinian peace negotiators says what's being lost in proposed plans for a post-war Gaza are the voices of Palestinians themselves, which is why the latest attempts to reform the Palestinian Authority are bound to fail. Process of elimination. An ally of Alexei Navalny contends that Vladimir Putin had the opposition activist killed to avoid freeing him in a planned prisoner swap. Our guest says that's impossible to prove, but not implausible. Rising through the rinks after one of the great careers in Canadian sport, two-time world champion and six-time Canadian champ Jennifer Jones says she's retiring from team curling to cheer on her kids. Owl good things must come to an end. The death of a beloved bird of prey spells the end of an era in New York City. One admirer of Flacco the Owl says he'll never be forgotten. And Tannenbaum Shell. An Irish court tosses a woman's insurance claim due to her own history of tossing, ruling that if she were seriously injured, she would not have won a Christmas tree throwing contest. As it happens, the Monday edition, radio that's always trying to move the needles. Ten months into a devastating civil war, the situation in Sudan is dire. Millions of people have been displaced, thousands have been killed, and many more face malnourishment, disease, and sexual violence. As the conflict continues, Ottawa is launching a new program to help bring more people affected by the war in Sudan to Canada. It will allow Canadian citizens and permanent residents to apply to sponsor family members. But the program is capped at 3,250 applications. And Ashraf Al-Tahir Ahmed says that has people worried. He's the president of the Sudanese Canadian Community Association. We reached him in Markham, Ontario. Ashraf, 10 months into this war, is this new sponsorship program offering some hope? Uh, the program actually is a big relief to Sudanese Canadians where they can uh, bring uh, their beloved ones. However, uh, the number of uh, opportunities through this program is very limited compared to the scale of the war and the number of uh, impacted people. Right. I I will want to ask about the specifics around that, but just quickly, your situation. I understand you're trying to bring your parents to Canada from Sudan. Can you just tell us the, the situation that they're in right now? Well, uh, that's correct. Uh, my parents, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, are like uh, seniors in their 70s, and they used to live uh, somewhere nearby one of the army camps. 
So when the war broke out in April, they were like uh, caught in the conspire and they needed to flee for their life to another city uh, that 140 kilometers uh, southern of the capital. But unfortunately, the war continued and the fighting groups captured the state or the province where they flee and they needed to go through the displacement again to a different city that, that's like 400 kilometers. So we decided that they cannot continue and they need to leave the country to some safe uh, location. So uh, I'm trying their chances uh, through this program and hopefully this will help them and help others to find safe uh, place to live. And as you say, there there are a limited number. I think it's 3,200 spaces total available. Is, is that even remotely enough? It's not enough. And, and to tell you the truth, I, I don't understand the rationale behind it. I mean, like the number of displaced people in Sudan based uh, on reports from the United uh, Nations and many other credible resources is, uh, I mean, like conservative is like 7.5 million and some estimation goes more than 10 million. That's wow. when you look at this number of displaced people in 10 months. So looking at the scale of the impacted people, 3,250 is nothing. We like uh, uh, appreciate the the opportunity from IRCC, but we look at this as a first step. We call on IRCC to remove the cap, especially that all coming people through this program will be financially covered by their relatives in Canada, so that will not overburden the budget of uh, the government. I'm thinking of the story of your parents who were caught in the middle when the war started. They had to flee to another city. They've since had to leave that place. Do they even have the documentation? Do they have everything they need to begin the application process where they hope to get one of these 3,200 spaces? You're absolutely right. I mean, like in in case of my parents, they have their passports with them. However, passports are not the only documentation required for this process. And for so many others, from my position as, you know, leading the Sudanese Community uh, Association in Canada, I'm expo- I know that so many people are going through this with no documentation whatsoever. So many people, they have uh, fled with only their clothes on. They don't have documentation. They don't have enough papers, let alone the, the level of documentation required for IRCC immigration process. What we are trying with IRCC is to relax the the requested documentation a little bit so that more people can leverage this opportunity and find a safe place. Recently on this program, we spoke with Jan Eglund of the Norwegian Refugee Council. He had been in Chad, where he's working with Sudanese refugees. And he told us that he was worried that people had forgotten about the situation in Sudan. Do you think people in Canada are aware, not just of what is happening there, but of the scale of the crisis? No, not at all. No, not at all. Uh, unfortunately, I mean, like uh, the the war in Sudan is is moving to the back seat. It's the forgotten uh, crisis, the forgotten crisis. And uh, for those who are seeking power, for those who are fighting, that's the optimum situation where they can continue their atrocities without people holding them accountable. And one of the things you mentioned is that you'd like to see the RCC relax the requirements a bit. Can, do you have thoughts, and what are they, about how the IRCC or the Canadian government or some of these bodies that are involved in the program, what specifically can they do to try to make this work better? Well, the good thing that, okay, Canada, I mean, like uh, government-wise, has an experience of dealing with situations like this. 
So uh, the uh, we have communicated this to IRCC. Uh, I mean, the 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 immigration should have a solution for situations where people they don't have documentation. As a separate move, Canada's Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship has said it's pledged more than $165 million to humanitarian relief efforts in Sudan. I know that's a separate track, but does that give you some comfort as well? Well, uh, definitely. I mean, like uh, from the time uh, war broke out, uh, social development, uh, sorry, international development have pledged to uh, participate in the humanitarian uh, effort. Uh, the the amount of uh, money or resources being availed so far is so less in comparison uh, to what is the situation requires. But at the same time, uh, the money will never will never be the solution to what is happening. What Canada can do best is to put more effort into the political you know arena by uh, campaigning the international community and pressuring and pressuring on the two fighting groups to bring them to the negotiation table and to restore the civilian-led uh, government. That's the biggest uh, thing Canada can do, and I think it has the capacity to do it. As you touched on, people's interest in these really big international crises is kind of notoriously fleeting. People forget very quickly. And as you say, focus has shifted to other wars and other crises. What is at risk for people like your parents if this program in this moment isn't fine-tuned? Well, you know, uh, if, uh, if no, no place to flee, it's very hard to say it, but I don't have hope in life. If I cannot travel to a neighboring country and I cannot leverage programs from countries like Canada, so I left with no option but to face the death. It's a very difficult situation. We really appreciate you sharing your story with us. Anytime. Thank you, Peter. Ashraf Al-Tahir Ahmed is the president of the Sudanese Canadian Community Association. He's in Markham, Ontario. We contacted Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada for comment, but we did not hear back by airtime. His family, his friends, and many political leaders outside Russia hold Vladimir Putin responsible for the death of Alexei Navalny in an Arctic penal colony. But now one of Mr. Navalny's closest allies is going further, claiming he was about to be freed in a prisoner swap and that instead President Putin had him killed. Alexei Navalny is not there anymore. And that was Maria Pevchik of Alexei Navalny's Anti-Corruption Foundation in a seven-minute video she released today on YouTube outlining her allegations. The Kremlin denies any involvement in Alexei Navalny's death, saying he died of natural causes. The video, though, claims that Russia was in the final stages of a deal that would have seen him released, along with two American citizens, in exchange for a Russian hitman who is serving time in Germany. Marcus Kolga is a Russia expert at the McDonald Laurier Institute. We reached him in Toronto. Marcus, what do you make of this allegation that Alexei Navalny was about to be freed in a prisoner swap before he died? Uh, well, look, I mean, it's, it's not surprising. We know that there's been a, uh, a prisoner swap being negotiated over the past number of months. And, uh, you know, the fact that uh, Alexei Navalny was included in it may have been attractive, or he may have been used as 
allure for Western governments to uh, take those negotiations a little bit more uh, seriously. But the fact that uh, he was killed uh, before that swap happened really uh, isn't too much of a surprise to me. Square that for me, though, because I I still don't think I have my head fully wrapped around it. Why would Russian President Putin make this deal, then have him killed, then let the word leak that there was some kind of a prisoner swap in the works? Uh, Well, look, uh, you know, anything that happens in Russia, in in Vladimir Putin's Russia, none of it often makes a, a heck of a lot of sense. But in this case, you know, and again, this is just speculation, there apparently was some hesitancy on the side of the of the Germans to let this Russian hitman go. And so, you know, to overcome that hesitancy, I would imagine that the Russians may have uh, added uh, his name, uh, Alexei Navalny's name, to the negotiations in order to secure uh, that deal. But, uh, you know, I think that realistically, I don't think that anyone would have ever expected Vladimir Putin to uh, to let Alexei Navalny go free because um, because of the threat that he posed to his regime, the effectiveness of the investigations that he published and such, uh, and what he represented uh, to the Russian people. So again, it's no surprise that he wasn't uh, finally part of that swap and and that uh, he was, uh, you know, unfortunately uh, killed in that prison. I feel like every time I talk to you, I'm teasing out, trying to figure out what is real, what isn't, what has concrete evidence to back it up. And yes, this is just speculation, but there is some truth. We do know, in fact, that there was some kind of, this probably still is, some kind of a prisoner swap negotiation and process. Is that correct? Uh, I'm sure that there are some negotiations happening. I mean, Vladimir Putin said so much during his rather uh, interesting uh, interview with, with Tucker Carlson right. uh, just the other week. And, and there are a number of Americans that are, uh, and Westerners, who are being held in Russian prisons. You know, Paul Whelan is one of them, who's a, a dual citizen, actually a quadruple citizen, also a Canadian. There's a uh, U.S. journalist uh, and one of the most high-profile uh, political prisoners right now, a U.K. Russian dual citizen, Vladimir Karamorza. He's in prison right now as well. And and as a, as a friend of his, I do hope that he's part of those uh, ongoing negotiations to get him out of the Russian prison that he's in right now and into safety in, in the uh, Western world. There's another part of this that I want to run by you that was in the news today. Uh, the, there's an intelligence official in Ukraine's Ministry of Defense, and he says he came out on the record today saying that he believes that Alexei Navalny actually died of a blood clot. And without sort of lending credence to whatever it is he said or not, do you think we'll ever actually know how Alexei Navalny died? Uh, I think it's entirely unlikely that we will uh, find out um, how he died while Vladimir Putin's uh, in prison. If it was you know, poison or some other chemical substance that was used uh, to kill Alexei Navalny, surely over the past week now, any trace of those substances would have been cleaned out of uh, Navalny's body if uh, there was any bruising, uh, signs of, of torture, of, of being beaten. Uh, those, there would be some other form of explanation for that, as there was in the case of Sergei Magnitsky, who uh, was detained in 2008 and died in prison in 2009. So it's, it's entirely unlikely that we'll get any sort of real, uh, credible explanation for this until there's a change in government and a transparent uh, democratic administration comes into power in Russia. 
And looking ahead, Alexei Navalny's supporters are looking for a venue for a public farewell to him later this week. Do you have a sense of, of where they might try to, to hold such a memorial, such a, a, a march for him? Well, first of all, I mean, it's, it's a question as to whether the authorities will uh, allow that at all. Uh, and it's, I think it's unlikely that there will be any sort of license or permit granted to uh, Navalny's family, uh, his friends and colleagues, uh, to have a public uh, funeral. Uh, that said, um, I'm sure that uh, Navalny supporters will hold a, a memorial event in any case, and probably some form of a march. Um, my understanding, having spoken to uh, some people that were very close to him, is that um, it could happen as early as, as this week, and it will probably take place in Moscow. And this is something that we need to keep a very close eye on, because, uh, you know, with this funeral, there will probably be a very large, a massive public outpouring of grief. Uh, and, you know, I think Russians may use that opportunity as well to express their anger at the way that this war is going and the way that Alexei Navalny died, because he was a hero to millions. And the mere act of laying flowers at memorials were prompted police to roll in pretty quickly and pretty violently to clear those out. What do you think the official reaction would be if they... if if these groups, especially in large numbers, tried to hold that memorial inside Russia? Well, over the past week, 400, uh, over 400 Russians have been detained, you're right, simply for the, for the act of laying red carnations uh, on, a, on a stone that's not even dedicated to Alexei Navalny. So if Russians do turn out in great numbers, expect a, uh, a strong police presence, I don't think that those authorities will hesitate at all in cracking down on the mourners uh, who participate in any sort of events. But I think that we need to be, you know, keeping an eye on the fallout of that, the consequences. Indeed. Marcus, always appreciate your insight. Thanks for having me on. Marcus Kolga is a Russia expert with the Macdonald Laurier Institute. He's in Toronto. Yesterday in Calgary, Jennifer Jones said goodbye to an event that she's dominated like pretty much no one else. The Manitoba Skip is an Olympic gold medalist and a two-time world champion. Before this year's Scotty's Tournament of Hearts began, she announced that it would be her last before her retirement from the four-person game. Ms. Jones won that tournament six times, competed in the finals 11 times, and played more games there than any other curler. And over the past few days, Jennifer Jones capped things off by leading her squad on yet another trip to the finals before finally being nudged out by the team from Ontario. We reached Jennifer Jones in Calgary. Jennifer Jones, what was it like to say goodbye to the Tournament of Hearts last night? Very emotional, um, especially with my family there, my mom and my husband and my kids. Like it was, and they were all emotional themselves. So it definitely pulled at my heartstrings a little bit, and but I couldn't have asked for a better farewell. The fans were just tremendous, and just to play in the final and to be in that moment one more time was really special. It was wild. You could really hear the fans, on the one hand, celebrating your opponent's victory, but also really giving you your moment as well. Yeah, I just it was totally unexpected. I turned around, and I was going, and all of a sudden... Um, they were standing and giving me a standing ovation, and um, for a long time it felt like forever. And I, um, I couldn't have asked for anything more. And Rachel and her team were were very gracious, and um, 
and you know I didn't want to take away anything from them and it was just but it was really a special moment I think for women's women's curling they were just standing and and celebrating women's curling which was amazing absolutely curling in general and you know they say in the end you start thinking about the beginning can I take you back to an earlier tournament of hearts appearance uh this was we're just going to play it for you here the play-by-play of your final shot in your first finals appearance back in 2005 take a listen to this a most difficult attempt, yeah. trying to come in off a stone on the outside, trying to get the roll to the stone at the button. They're working on it frantically. There's the contact. There's the roll. She's made it. What a shot for the win. That is the best shot I've ever seen to win a game. That was the best shot I had ever seen to win a game. I can remember exactly where I was standing when that happened. What 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 do you remember? What, what does it feel like hearing that all these years later? Oh, I still get goosebumps. I can put myself <laughs> back in that moment. And oh, that was my first Scotty's final too. And you, all you ever want is just an opportunity to win. And I mean, I had the I had the opportunity, and I let it go. And I knew it was going to be close. And just at the second hog line, I thought it was going to be. I was going to hit it perfectly, and I just didn't want to be wrong. And just when it hit and I knew we had won, I thought my body was going to explode. It was the most biggest adrenaline rush I've ever received. And, and um, it's just a moment that will be forever remembered in the sport and something that, you know, we got to be firsthand a part of. And just the excitement of my team is truly special. Your coach, Glenn Howard, has said that the thing that defines you as a curler is your, and this is his quote here, quote, uncanny ability to make the big shot, unquote. Where is it that time and time again you found that that cool that you need to execute in those clutch moments? I think for me it's always been just to enjoy the moment, and I've never been scared to lose because I've, I've never played. Obviously you want to win. That's why you compete. But that's not the main reason I play. I played because I love it and I wanted to push ourselves and see where we could we could take curling. And so when I'm in that moment and the pressure's on, I'm not scared to miss. And I think that's really helped me in my career and has also helped me really enjoy the sport for so long and never really gotten tired of it. Now, you've said you're, you're stepping back from, from the game to spend more time with your kids. What do they say about your decision? <laughs> they don't want me to retire, and that's been the <laughs> hardest part. When we lost, last night and they came over the board um, my littlest one Skyla came running to me and she just kept saying please change your mind please change your mind <laughs> <laughs> they just love it so much and you know we talk about in our family about why we do things and chasing dreams and they don't want me to give up on my dreams and I just keep telling them you can have other dreams and so um, I just really want to be there for them like my mom was for me and um, you know I want to be front and center and I don't want to miss out on on so many things. So, you know, it, it's been a, it's been a long thought process. And although it's really hard to leave the game and I don't want to disappoint my children or anybody else, I, I, I feel like it's the best decision for me. You know, the big sports like curling that, that play such an outsized role in our, in our national life, they ebb and they flow and the sponsorships come and go. When you think back to that first tournament that you played in at the national stage, how much has the game changed? Oh, so much. Right. Um, yeah, back then, you know, at most, almost all curlers worked full time, and we played in maybe you know a handful of events a year, and you just, you just didn't. There wasn't all these big events. Women were not um, in the Grand Slams on TV. Um, we only played in one televised event in an arena, and that was the Scotties. Uh, 
and now we play, you know, seven televised events. We're playing every week. We're gone all the time. It, it's just it's it's completely different than when it used to be, and just the level of play is just increased around the world. It's it's pretty crazy how fast it's growing, and um, it's been really cool to be a part of it. It's it's been an amazing ride, and just on behalf of curling fans, thank you for everything, and uh, and we do look forward to seeing what you do next. Thank you, and to everybody, thank you. This week and a half has been more than I could have ever imagined, and hearing all the stories from the fans of what they were doing when we won the Olympics or their special moments, um, it's it's meant the world to me. So thank you. Jennifer Jones is a six-time national champion, a two-time world champion, and an Olympic gold medal curler. We reached her in Calgary. The ruling Palestinian Authority is deeply unpopular in much of the West Bank, but the United States apparently still believes it is the force that can best govern the territory and perhaps play a role in Gaza after the fighting stops. Today, after pressure from the U.S., the PA's Prime Minister, Mohammed Shteya, and his government submitted their resignations to President Mahmoud Abbas. The PA is being pushed to enact reforms and earn back some legitimacy. Last week, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu released his own blueprint for what he wants to happen in Gaza after the fighting stops. In that plan, Israel would provide security and Palestinians with no connection to countries or groups that, quote, support terrorism would run things. Rashid Khalidi is a professor at Columbia University and a former advisor to the Palestinian delegation to the Madrid and Washington Arab-Israeli peace negotiations in the 1990s. We reached him in Chicago. Rashid, what's behind today's resignation in, in the Palestinian Authority? I think this is an attempt uh, on the part of the PA of the Palestinian Authority to bend to the demands of the United States and its allies that the PA reform. Um, this is part of an American plan to try and put together a post-Gaza scenario. And it is something that has obviously been in the planning for quite a while. I read about it a few days ago that it was coming. The PA... If you listen to the the American sort of argument here, is that the PA is both ineffectual and corrupt. We can get into the effectiveness of removing the prime minister, but w- what do you think the next move is going to be here? Well, first of all, the PA is not just ineffectual. The PA is an authority that has no authority, um, no jurisdiction, and no sovereignty. It essentially operates as a sort of subcontractor for the Israeli occupation, mainly protecting Israeli settlers, Israeli soldiers and Israeli civilians rather than protecting the Palestinians and rather than offering services to them. Um, And so a reform of the PA, which is both ineffective because of that, that's the way it was designed, and also uh, lacks legitimacy. Um, These institutions uh, involve a parliament that was elected in 2006 and has not been allowed to meet for many, many years. A president who was elected in 2005 in his term ended a few years after that and who has no legitimacy and and which is vastly unpopular with Palestinian public opinion. So the United States is basically pumping formaldehyde into a moldering corpse uh, with, with these so-called reform efforts. 
And in those 2006 elections you mentioned, Palestinians widely rejected the PA entirely. That's how Hamas got into power. Is there any sense that any version of the PA today could somehow win the support back of regular Palestinians? Frankly, the Palestinian Authority only supposedly represents Palestinians in the occupied territories. There are a couple million Palestinians who are Israeli citizens. They're not represented by the PA. And there are six at least million Palestinians outside. The ones outside and the ones in the occupied territories are represented by the PLO. If the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, which negotiated the Oslo Accords with Israel, if that were revived, then you might have a legitimate uh, body uh, to deal with the United States or Israel or anybody else. Is there an obvious person that could lead a, a unified PLO? I mean, what would have to do, what would have to happen would be, first of all, other other actors, and most notably the the big fat thumb on the scale of the United States, would have to be removed. Um, the Israeli veto on this individual or that faction would have to be removed, um, and the Palestinians would have to be allowed to choose, you know, freely who represents them, which would mean you would have a mix of people who would probably be unacceptable to the United States and Israel. You know, the, the, the South Africans tried to say, we will, not, we will not negotiate with the ANC. And the British tried to say, we will not negotiate with the IRA. And of course, they couldn't get anywhere that way. Hmm. And Israel saying, we won't negotiate with this, that, or the other one means they don't intend and don't want to get anywhere. And the United States follows along like a, like a lame puppy with whatever the Israelis say. Last week, the Israelis laid out, I mean, Benjamin Netanyahu at least, laid out his plan for a a post-war Gaza. It involved Israel providing what it calls security uh, and local officials, no connections to terrorism governing the territory. Does that plan, I mean, we're we're talking here about how, how, how a reformed PA doesn't stand much of a chance. Does the Netanyahu plan for post-war Gaza stand much of a chance? Well, the Netanyahu plan at its core is a recipe for continued occupation of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, or a reoccupation, if you want, of the Gaza Strip, and a more intensive occupation of the West Bank. And that stands the same chance of meeting widespread Palestinian approval as the last 56 years of Israeli occupation have, which is to say the Palestinians have resisted. Occupation breeds resistance. And that's what that's the basic recipe that Netanyahu has put forward. We will pick the stooges whom we want to run things, and we will be in control of everything important, which is basically the situation in the occupied territories. There's a growing frustration, certainly among Democrats, but growing among Americans in general, that the American, that the Biden administration hasn't sort of had a a better handle on this. Do you think the existing Biden administration, uh, with all of the support that it's given Israel since long before October 7th, but certainly since, uh, do you think there is a recipe for a, a change in the way the Americans approach this conflict? Well, Americans have changed. Uh, more than two-thirds of Americans want a an immediate ceasefire, unconditional and lasting. The Biden administration does not. The Biden administration essentially wants to allow Israel to go back and attack Gaza uh, as soon as this pause that they're negotiating, negotiating ends, if, if it cannot be extended. Um, so American public opinion has moved on well beyond the position of the Biden administration. Uh, the question is, will the Biden administration come to its senses and not kick the 2024 November election uh, into the bushes by continuing this blind support for almost everything Israel does or wants? Everybody seems to have an idea of what they would like to see that would potentially end this stage of the conflict. Do you have a sense of what it will actually take uh, to bring the fighting to an end in Gaza? 
frankly, it would take the United States finding a backbone and telling the Israelis, we will send food in whether you like it or not. We will supply water whether you like it or not. I mean, we have a sixth fleet. We're paying billions of dollars to have the most powerful fleet on Earth, we American taxpayers. That fleet could land unlimited amounts of food, water, medicine, and whatever on the beaches of Gaza. There's no reason the Israelis should or could object. Uh, That's just a, a, a small example of the things that the United States could and should do. It could say, you know, you're firing these tank shells and these 155 millimeter artillery shells and dropping these bombs. If you don't do X, Y, and Z, we're going to stop sending you those things. Now, there might be a political cost to the president for doing that, but he should be weighing the fact that he is going to be paying a very heavy political cost if he doesn't do something like that. In other words, if he pretends that the United States is powerless to prevent Israel from doing things that it can only do because the United States supports it and so do it. Well, listen, we just really appreciate your insight on all of this complicated day. Thank you for this. Not at all. Thanks a lot. Have a good one. Rashid Khalidi is a professor at Columbia University and a former advisor to the Palestinian delegation to the Madrid and Washington Arab-Israeli peace negotiations of the 1990s. We reached him in Chicago. Coming up later in the show, we'll talk to a longtime U.S. Democrat who tells us she is so upset about Joe Biden's support of Israel in the war in Gaza that she won't vote for him, even if that means Donald Trump could win the election. Hi, I'm Michelle Shepard, host of Uncover Charmini from CBC Podcasts. In 1999, 15-year-old Charmini Anandeville disappeared on her way to a job that police believed didn't exist. Four months later, her remains were found in a wooded ravine. I revisit the case that has stayed with me for over 20 years, ever since I first covered it as a cub crime reporter for the Toronto Star. You can find Uncover Charmini on CBC Listen or on your favourite podcast app. News of his death made the front page of the New York Times, befitting his status as a Manhattanite with a legion of fans who tracked his every move. Today, they are mourning Flacco, the Eurasian eagle owl, who was found dead on a sidewalk on Friday, apparently after flying into a window high above. Flacco spent the first 12 years of his life in captivity at the Central Park Zoo, and then just over a year ago he escaped after vandals cut the netting at the zoo. He subsequently attracted thousands of supporters in the city and around the world, dedicated followers of his adventures as a free bird in the big city. Writer Lisa Amand is one of Flacco's fans. We reached her in Manhattan. Lisa, how does it feel to look up into the Manhattan sky today and know that Flacco is no longer up there flying free? Well, it's been sad for the past three days, and he definitely left a void, and we miss him, and I don't think we even know how much we will miss him, but um, we're mourning. Yeah. I've never had the opportunity to meet a Eurasian eagle owl, so for people who didn't know Flacco, can you just paint us a bit of a picture? What do you look like? Well, he was magnificent. He was big. He had a wingspan of six feet, had these velvety feathers that were 
orange and yellow and brown and black and white. And he was big. He had an oversized personality, <laughs> and he was a, an enormous owl. What do you think it was about Flacco's story that, that made so many New Yorkers care just so deeply about him? Well, he, at first, in f- February of last year, when he the zoo was vandalized, for a good 10 days, we really didn't know if he could fend for himself. We didn't know if he knew how to hunt or in the beginning, he really didn't even know how to fly. So there was a lot of suspense and people were really, uh, there were people who thought he should be recaptured, that uh, he would be better off in the zoo. And others felt, oh, this is so exciting that he's now a free bird. And um, they just hoped that his instincts would eventually kick in. And it was 10 long, um, scary days when we did not know if he would know how to hunt. Were you going down to Central Park to to try to look for him at that time? Well, we first uh, met him uh, two days after he uh, left the zoo. And there was a moment, actually, February 11th, when we actually saw him regurgitate a pellet, (laughs) and we had proof that he had eaten a rodent. (laughs) (laughs) The funny things you come to celebrate, eh? Right, right. So then it was at that point that the zoo, the next day, announced that they would stop their recapture attempts you know, they were adamant about recapturing him until they saw that he really had the um, ability right. to survive. And and he did for a whole year. He was on the lam for a year. And then uh, the, the initial findings from the Central Park Zoo suggest he, he probably died because he flew into a building. It's the kind of thing that, that wouldn't have happened if he had remained in captivity. So... I mean, where do you stand? In the long run, do you think it was worth it for him to be free? I don't think he would have been better off in the zoo because it was a very small enclosure and he couldn't fly. And he seemed so jaunty and happy and playful as he flew all over the park and um, met our eyes, you know, and he seemed to just be enjoying himself immensely. So... um, I don't know what to say. That's such a heavy philosophical question. Yeah. You know, this has turned into one of those great New York City stories, right? Where you have this kind of big, loud, sometimes, you know, rough and tumble city all brought together by some strange thing. In this case, the, the flight to freedom of a Eurasian eagle owl. What does it tell us about New York? Well, I thought that Flacco was telling us personally that um, because I think New Yorkers are known for being both sophisticated and provincial, often staying in their own neighborhoods. But Flacco, I know, pushed us to trek all over the park as if he was saying, come on, explore, break out of your comfort zone. I I think that it was a story that I heard immigrants saying they identified with him. I know the Photographers loved shooting him. 
children were just charmed by his story. It was amazing. His fan club is actually worldwide. Yeah, I mean, and here we are on the radio, public radio in Canada talking about the, the, the legacy of this bird. Yeah, yeah. I wish you could have seen him. And I wish, I mean, even people I met at the memorial, New Yorkers had never met him, but they still were in love with him. They were still in love with his story. And you have not heard the end of it. I mean, there's going to be statues and plaques, and I'm sure there'll be a more formal memorial. And I imagine many trees in the park are going to be known as Flacco's trees. Yeah, no doubt. Well, look, I'm sorry for your loss, but I'm sure grateful you're able to share all these stories with us today. Oh, well, thank you for your interest. Lisa Amand is a writer and a fan of the late Flacco the Owl. She's in Manhattan. Sexism, environmental destruction, intergenerational trauma, Islamophobia. Recent Canada Reads winners have been surprising, enlightening, experimental, and even funny, but there is no denying that they've dealt with some tough themes, which makes one of this year's contenders surprising in a whole new way. The CBC's annual Battle of the Books kicks off next week, and fashion influencer Myrian Unja will be championing Carly Fortune's novel about a chance encounter with a, quote, aggravatingly attractive, idealistic artist, unquote. If that has you assuming that Meet Me at the Lake is a romance, you're not wrong. But as far as its defender is concerned, you would be wrong to write it off. In Ms. Unja's words, it's a book that, quote, inspires and empowers us to reflect on our own lives and values, to see how the choices we make bring us closer to our own happily ever after, unquote. And it opens with protagonist Fern Brookbank's description of a tall man who shows up at her mother's Muskoka resort. Here's author Carly Fortune reading from her shortlisted novel. The skyscraper's back is facing us, but you can tell his suit is expensive. Custom-made, probably. The black fabric is cut to his frame in the kind of impeccable manner that requires precise measurements and generous room on a credit card. I doubt an off-the-rack number would be long enough for this guy's arms, and the cuff of his sleeve is perfect. So is his slicked back hair, inky and glossy and as meticulously styled as his jacket is tailored. He's overdressed, to be honest. This is a beautiful resort, one of the nicest in eastern Muskoka, and the staff is always well put together, but the guests tend to keep things casual, especially in the summer. I'm going to go help him, I tell Jamie. I need practice with the check-ins. Come make sure I do it right. There's no arguing. We can't just let the fancy man stand there. As we round the desk, I apologize for making him wait. Welcome to Brookbank's resort, I say, glancing up quickly. Even with me and my heels, he's got almost a foot on me. Did you have any trouble finding us? I ask, punching a key to wake up the computer. Tall dude still hasn't said anything. The last stretch of road is unpaved, unlit, and has some wicked turns through the bush. Sometimes city people find it stressful, especially when they arrive after sundown. I'm pegging this guy as a Torontonian, though he could be from Montreal. There's a medical conference starting next week. Some of the doctors are arriving early, making a holiday of the long weekend. No. He runs a hand down his tie, says nothing more. Good. I type in my passcode. Are you with the dermatologists? 
I navigate to the main menu, and when he doesn't answer, I clear my throat and try again. Do you have a reservation with us? I do. He says the words slowly, like he's scanning them for errors. I have no idea what his problem is. Men who wear suits like his usually sound a lot more confident. But then I look up, and I met with a very handsome, very chiseled, very tense-looking face. He's about my age, and he's strangely familiar. I'm sure I've seen this face before. It's something about the nose. Maybe he's an actor, although celebrity types don't usually show up in suits and a fresh shave. Or at least they didn't used to. The name? His eyebrows rise at my question, like he's surprised I've asked. Then I notice how dark his eyes are, black as a crow's wing, and my stomach twists. His posture is flawless. My heart races, pounding in the pads of my fingers and the balls of my feet. I search for the scar immediately. And there it is, below his lip on the left side of his chin, barely visible unless you know to look for it. I can't believe I still know to look for it. But I do. I know this face. I know his irises aren't actually black. In the sunlight, they're espresso brown. I know how he got that scar. Because even though I've tried to forget him, I know exactly who this man is. Carly Fortune reading from her Canada Reads-nominated novel, Meet Me at the Lake. The 2024 Battle of the Book starts next week on CBC Radio, CBC Television, and CBC Gem. There's no question that winning tomorrow's Democratic primary vote in Michigan will be a piece of cake for Joe Biden, but that doesn't mean the incumbent U.S. president will find the result especially sweet. There's widespread anger in the state over Mr. Biden's continued support of Israel in its war in Gaza, especially among the state's 200,000 Arab Americans. Many Democrats are planning to vote uncommitted rather than mark an X by the president's name. And there's real concern that a loss of support among Arab Americans could cost him the general election next November. Terry Awal is a longtime Democrat who has worked as a fundraiser for the party. We reached her in Farmington Hills, Michigan. Terry, what are you going to do when you get into that voting booth? Will Biden get your support? Not today. In fact, I just came from the voting booth and I just voted uncommitted. Uncommitted. What message do you send by doing that? Uh, the message that I am discontent with what's happening in the Middle East and our complicity with the genocide that is taking place in Gaza. I, I mean, you've spent a, a lifetime supporting the Democrats. How did you come to this? I'm sure it was a difficult decision. It is a horrible decision, not only a difficult decision. And I did spend my entire adult life supporting Democrats and will continue to support Democrats on the local level. But President Biden is not heeding our voices to stop sending weapons, bombs to shred the bodies of children in Gaza. And we met with him. We talked with him. We even the smallest things that we ask him to call for a ceasefire. He's refusing to do so. Well, not in my name. So we're not going to do that. So my vote is my voice. And this is a way to say, not in my name. 
We have seen something of a shift recently in the administration's position on the war. Uh, you can see the February 8th, Biden called Israel's actions in Gaza, the, the words he used were over the top. Uh, he endorsed at least a conditional ceasefire at that time. Is there anything that Biden could say or do now at this point that could win back your support? Um, no. First of all, when he said over the top, uh, John Stewart said it perfectly. It's just like, uh, oh, yeah, it's just a small incident. They're over the top. 29,000 people is not over the top. 29,000 people is genocide. The only thing that he could do is stop sending money to Israel, put pressure on Israel, stop vetoing all the UN resolution, uh, reinstate the much needed money to UNRWA, which is the uh, the UN agency that support the refugees in Gaza and other uh, other places as well, and stop kowtowing to Netanyahu's fascist government. Do you think, though, that Biden, that he had to show some kind of uh, support uh, and maybe even blanket support in the immediate days after uh, after what happened on October 7th? Um. I am a pacifist, so therefore violence is something that I would never support. But what bothers me is the hypocrisy. The president and the people who are in elected official uh, office on the national level know what's happening daily to the Palestinians on the ground. So October 7th was just one incident of violence, which is horrible in itself. But what is happening on the ground daily in Gaza? What's happening on the ground daily to the Palestinians? It just it tells me that my life, the life of my family, the life of my friends, the life of my people don't matter. I personally lived under the Israeli occupation for five years and chronicled this in a book that I wrote. So everything that you see in Gaza, it's been happening since 1948 and intensified in 1967. So this is the violence against the Palestinians always have gone unheeded. So that bothers me. But at first I said, well, it's basically we have to vote for him because the lesser of two evil. Right. But to me, I can't see the difference. I can't see. I will never vote for Trump. I would never, I would never have anybody in my circle to vote for Trump. But do you think the Palestinians, do you think Palestinians would be worse off under Trump than they would be under Biden? Then I would ask the question is, shouldn't we then start reassessing why are we doing what we're doing to support Israel instead of asking me if it's, you know, Trump is going to be worse for the Palestinian or better? I don't see the difference in that policy. I don't see the difference. So you went into the the ballot box today and and voted uncommitted. There there is growing calls for an open convention to to get somebody other than Biden to run. What what do you think of those calls? Uh, It's, you know, if we live in a true democracy, we should do that. We cannot just have anointed uh, people to be presidents because they ran for office and they won and they won a second term. My question is, 
what is the best for this country? Forget about the Palestinian. What's the best of, in this for this country at this moment? Uh, our foreign policy, the whole world is standing against us. People are voting against us in the United Nations everywhere. Uh, few countries are supporting our stand on the Palestinian-Israeli issue. So to me, if there is candidates that are going to come out from the convention and basically oppose our stand uh, in the, uh, you know, uh, on Palestine, Israel, then, um, yeah, I think it will be a good thing. Well, listen, we're going to have to leave it there, but I really do appreciate your insight on this today. Thank you. Well, thank you. We reached Terry Awal in Farmington Hills, Michigan. You're putting together a whole film festival of taxi movies. What do you program? Go. Yeah, I know. I know. We all came up with the same gritty, dark-hearted classic, the 2004 film Taxi, starring Jimmy Fallon and Queen Latifah. And then we all got stuck. Well, apparently, there's also a Martin Scorsese movie called Taxi Driver. Also, there's a South Korean film called A Taxi Driver and a German film from 1974 whose title translates as Hello Taxi. And this past weekend, all those movies played as part of Taxi Film Fest, which took place at the same time as the Berlin International Film Festival in Berlin. That was not a coincidence. Taxi Film Fest was organized to protest the Berlin Film Fest's exclusive partnership with Uber to drive actors and filmmakers all over the city and to highlight the overall dire state of the taxi industry in Germany. If you had been there, you could have caught a screening in the back of a cab. Klaus Meyer helped put the Taxi Film Fest on. We reached him in Berlin. Klaus, which movie was voted most popular at this year's Taxi Film Fest? Oh, well, no, to no surprise, everybody loves Taxi Driver by Martin <laughs> Scorsese. <laughs> it's not even a movie about taxi drivers. Uh, no, it's not a movie about taxi drivers. Oh, well, there's a taxi driver in the, in the movie. but uh, And in fact, what I appreciate in this movie is the most horrible taxi client ever, which is uh, interpreted by Martin Scorsese himself. Right in the movie. <laughs> so that that's one of your favorite scenes about a taxi driver. What is your favorite taxi-related, broadly speaking, movie that, that's not mm. Taxi Driver? Well, in fact, uh, I rediscovered a movie which I watched the first time some 14 years ago, which is called um, Under the Bombs, and which describes a taxi odyssey through the South Lebanon in fact, they, 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 they shot it in the end of 2006, just after the end of the war. And the, the movie tells the story of a woman, a Lebanese woman, uh, who is looking for her son, who had spent vacation with the family and who has disappeared in the war events. And this, the war events, and that's really a really, really tragedy. In fact, the film is dedicated to all the victims of uh, war and of uh, who disappear under the bombs, under the buildings which collapse. That's really a great story. To me, 
this has something of Shakespearean dimensions. Wow. It, it, it's such a neat film festival that you guys put on. I was looking at pictures online of, of like people huddled into the back of one of these little taxi vans. Can you just describe the, the screening room in the backs of these vans that people have been using? Yeah, in fact, what was happening, uh, we just took an old huge taxi, which usually has uh, up to eight uh, places for passengers. We took out the standard seats, put in banks, and uh, well, put in a carpet, red carpet for sure. <laughs> and uh, well, and in fact, I borrowed the TV screen of my mother <laughs> and her, <laughs> her DVD player, and uh, we we got it in there. And uh, so, first we thought that maybe should we should have bought a bigger one, but no, it turned out it was just the right size. And so, together with some with some good speaker. This was a really nice little cinema for up to, in fact, we were up to 12 in this taxi, which is made for just eight passengers. It's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people jammed in there. And are they eating popcorn and having snacks the whole time? Yeah, the Canadian um, husband, I think, of one of our co-organizers, uh, he is perfect popcorn maker. Ooh. So we were making handmade. We were eating handmade Canadian popcorn in a way. <laughs> Amazing! It's not. It's just not the movies. If you don't have popcorn, now of course <laughs> this this festival's going on in conjunction at the same time as the Berlin International Film Festival, but also <clears throat> at least yeah. partly to protest its exclusive partnership with Uber this year. Can you just give us a sense of how difficult life has become for? For you and for taxi drivers out there trying to make a living right now. Yeah. In fact, when you're in taxi or transportation business with Uber, only a few of us still are able to make as much so much money that they get the minimum wage. Oh, for wow. taxis, taxi drivers, this has become really difficult. And for Uber drivers, this is impossible. So you, you want to get the word out there. You, you hold this film festival uh, right from the beginning of the Berlin International Film Festival. You wrapped up yeah. yesterday. What did you hear from people who were walking by your van over the past couple of weeks? We had some Uber drivers who were yelling at us. We had lots of taxi drivers who were honking and uh, waving at us and uh, bypasses uh, where they just dropped in, discussed a little bit with us and... Uh, well, I like the idea because anyway, it's a bit strange to establish a cinema in one of the main avenues of Berlin uh, right. <laughs> inside inside a taxi. Yeah. So the the image it's the image in itself it was was worth it, and in the end, everybody's quite happy. And and some days on the fourth of March, by the way, we'll be in once again in a commission at the in the local parliament to talk about all this stuff and to, f to find out ways uh, to resolve those problems. And at the end of the day, what is it that you'd like people to know about why the taxi drivers are such an important part of your city? Taxi drivers, they are people who really know the town. They're part of the culture of the town. They are people who have lots of experience uh, and knowledge about what's going on. Give you an example. Um, once I managed to get uh, an, uh, a passenger an apartment in an afternoon. Oh wow! You'd only do this if you know your city really well. So 
taxi drivers in general, you can say, are able to do much more for their clients than just get them from point A in the city to point B. So taxi is being a regulated industry of the city. Part of the city infrastructure is the thing everybody needs. And so, well, we hope that uh, the message will pass through. That uh, That's what has to be defended. Well, it's been an interesting thing to watch unfold. We're sure glad you came on to talk with us about it today. Thanks for this. Thank you. Bye-bye. Klaus Meyer is a taxi driver. We reached him in Berlin. So you want to participate in a Christmas tree throwing competition. Well, this handy guide will help you decide if that's a good idea or if it might cost you more than a million dollars. There are lots of reasons to want to loose the spruce, as we say in the business. Exercise, camaraderie, maybe you love Christmas trees, maybe you hate them so much. But before you propel the pine, as we say in the business, you should answer the following questions. Number one, do you have the courage to go mano a mano against your friends and neighbors, knowing that winning will cement you as their athletic and spiritual superior, and losing will destroy you? Number two, how's your lower back? Number three, have you filed a suit against your insurance company seeking the equivalent of $1,114,510 Canadian for injuries sustained in a car accident, which you say have prevented you from working, playing with your children, and doing basic chores? Question three is very important. Just ask Camila Grabska of Ireland. After a car crash, she said her back pain was so bad that she couldn't lift anything heavy and she had to quit her job. She wanted her insurance company to pay up. There was just one problem. Less than a year after the accident, she competed in a Christmas tree throwing contest. And there was just another problem. She won, which led to a third problem, a photo of her throwing a good-sized Christmas tree appearing in a national newspaper. So now, due to that tossing, an Irish court has also done some tossing, as in her case, out which is a shame for Ms. Grabska, who was really hoping for that money and lost it all because of a series of flings. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1 after Your World Tonight. You can also listen to our show anytime at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Peter Armstrong. Thanks so much for listening. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.